Hi, I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm at Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you, and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. Today is a special edition of the podcast, Is That Even Legal? You know, the law is not theory. It's real. It affects us. It hurts us. It helps us. It changes our behaviors. No one understands the law more than Lauren Castle. Lauren Castle reports for the court system, reports on the court system, criminal justice, and other legal issues for the Arizona Republic. She is a graduate of Southern Methodist University, and she goes out and talks to people, talks to people in the system, talks to people who are prosecuting, and talks to people who are prosecuted. And she really understands and knows how the law affects us. 2020 has been unique. And we're going to look back at the years, some of the most unique stories in the law. Lauren, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, you, there, you did a story in the Arizona Republic about how COVID was changing the court systems. This is something that is affected my daily life that the one area where I've really been affected, obviously, because I go to the courtrooms. One of the things that we have in this country is the constitutional right to a speedy trial. And what the founders were concerned about is that the government doesn't drag their feet and punish an accused person by simply doing nothing and making that person sit in jail until the problems resolved. They wanted a speedy trial. Juries were affected and juries who decide cases. How were juries affected this year? Yes, so um, for some time, juries were post, jury trials were postponed um, and you know people were still getting summons in the mail um, and so that kind of confused people because they were like, you know, this is the pandemic coming, going on and will I still be safe? Am I expected to show up in court? Um, and so at least in Maricopa County with Superior Court, um, you know, the jury department, jury um, service department were still handling things and finding ways to protect people once jury trials would resume. Um, so they've done a several different things from, um, you know, you know, implementing social distancing procedures, um, making everyone wear masks, um, several different things. Um, you know, there's not a lot of people who are allowed to come into the courthouse. So people who have to do jury duty don't have to worry about that. Um, because at least in Maricopa County Superior Court, it's one of the largest in the country. Um, so they don't have to worry about so many people walking into the courtroom and um, having to worry about that. Of course, um, one of the other common things they have to do is, you know, have their temperatures checked once they walk into the door. Um, so that's kind of new. And um, they still can, you know, request the postponement um, with Arizona law. They get two. Um, however, if you don't respond to your summons, yeah, you have the op- you 
there's a possibility that you might be requested to appear in front of a judge um, and explain why you didn't show up for jury duty. So that's something, you know, people need to be mindful of if they um, decide not to respond. Yeah, you know, we didn't really think about it, but you're right. The, there's all these safety procedures. And on the important cases, people want to come in and watch and, you know, see what's happening. Well, you don't do that right now. Um, there's ways to, to watch online. If you make a request, I understand. But yeah, you, you're not just walking into a courtroom and sitting in the back and seeing how justice is performed. That's different. And and the postponement of trials, that's was quite unique. And the postponement of the jury is quite unique. And I still don't think we're quite in full swing on jury trials in the civil world. So we have this holdup in the courts. I personally have seen my practice change where I once used to go to the courtroom once a week and perform all the duties I need to do at least once a week. Now it's online. And I, we're seeing even trials take place online. And that's unique. And it's in some ways, it's, it's great. All those five-minute conferences that I'd have to go downtown for and it'll cost my client two hours as I go down and I wait for the judge. Now, I, I put on my video conference. I work until the judge wants to talk to me. The, the judge comes up and we talk and it's over for five, at the end of that five minutes. It's a, that's great. I hope that never changes. But as we look at the juries, not only the safety protocols and, and the judges, but how does a judge, when, a, you know, a, Judge, how does a judge not who's not in person, who's only watching it on the video, really assess the witness? Is there someone in the room prompting that person? Is there? Uh, do you see that person fidget? You know that it, when you're in a room, you can see if their eyes are darting around and and whether or not they're showing those tells that they're nervous. But online, it's. And on the video, it's a little bit different. And with those civil cases, we're still not in full swing. The criminal cases are still are in the courtroom still, but those civil cases aren't. So, uh, yeah, fascinating what, what's going on. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point just about those physical cues with witnesses. Um, I spoke to a justice of the peace because um, I spent a kind of a half day in the justice courts to see how they were being impacted with the COVID, with COVID-19. And he said there's good things and there are also bad things with what's going on and how they're handling cases. And he said that was one of the kind of the negative things about um, how they're having to handle things is that he can't really see, um, you know, how witnesses and defendants are acting to kind of understand what's going on. Um, but he said when it comes to um, eviction cases and other things, more people are starting to show up because they're able to fit that into their schedules, with their daily schedules, because they're able to call in um, for a case instead of having to drive um, to the courthouse, which might be um, further for them um, if it's a justice court. So, um, you know, there's some pros and cons with what's going, how, you know, the courts are handling things right now. 
fascinating. Another story that I saw in the Republic that is a really interesting story and also quite disturbing in many ways is a story about how coronavirus has affected the correctional system. Tell me about that story. Yeah, so in June, uh, Maricopa County jails were hit with a federal lawsuit um, accusing them of not um, adequately taking care of inmates during um, the pandemic. Um, And in the jails, as well as in the state prisons, there's been an outbreak um, of the virus. So as of yes, as of Monday, there's um, has been 1,705 inmates in our county jails who've tested positive. And that number is almost is almost the same amount as inmates in our state jails. So that kind of gives you an idea. Um, I mean, in our state prison. So that kind of gives you an idea of how big this is um, when it comes to Maricopa County. Um, so, so, you know, okay. that's an interesting update. So essentially, yeah. if you walk into a prison, you're getting COVID. Is that what you're telling me? Well, Close. that actually is one of the things that um, I reported uh, a couple of months ago. Um, I wrote a story about basically just stating, just showing all these letters. I got over a nine over 90 letters from inmates in our state prisons about COVID. Um, I'm kind of one of the reporters that receives a lot of mail. Um, so I've checked, I, even though we're working from home, I've gone into the office and checked my mail because I knew I, re- I would be receiving a lot of mail from inmates in our jails and in our prisons. And the majority of my mail um, has been about COVID. Usually it's been about either their cases or about health conditions or about, you know, the other concerns, but lately it's only been about COVID. Um, And so when it comes to our inmates in our state prisons, many of them have said, basically, if you come here, your sentence is COVID. Um, And so they've described different issues from um, you know, hey, I, I'm not being tested when I'm showing signs or even though I tested positive, I'm not being quarantined or other people who tested positive are not being quarantined. So there's several things going on and several concerns, even for family members. You know, let me push you a little bit on this. I would hear people say in response, well, come on, who cares? They're only inmates. They're criminals. Right? Do we even care? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different things you can say about that, about those type of comments. Um, the first thing is that, well, you know, when we are hit with lawsuits, a federal judge has to decide, okay, what's going to be the punishment if one needs to be, if there needs to be one. Um, when it comes to the state prisons, they've already had to deal with a federal lawsuit overall when it comes to the overall um, health care concerns of inmates. And that um, was Parsons v. Ryan. And that resulted into, that basically led to a settlement. And that settlement meant that the state had to pay, um, had to pay fees if they were not in compliance with the settlement. And that has happened several times. And that impacts taxpayers. So I think that kind of, you know, is something that people, everyone should be concerned about because 
that impacts everyone when you're a taxpayer. Um, another thing is just, you know, a lot of advocates and a lot of families have been saying, well, my loved one is also a human being. Um, and so, you know, that's something I think to be mindful of when you um, read stories about, you know, what a loved one's concern is. Um, I spoke to a mom um, who claims that her daughter was the very first inmate, um, female inmate to test positive um, with COVID in our prisons. And so her concerns was just, I care about my child, um, who she still calls, you know, calls her baby girl. Um, yeah. her child was, you know, in her 20s. And so she's like, I just care. I want to know what's going on. I want to know how she's being, how she's being taken care of. Um, so there's different things, you know, you need to be mindful of when you read these stories and, and think, well, even though I might not know a person in um, the prisons or in the jails, it's still going to impact me. Um, you know, if the jails, if someone's sick, it, that can impact a case. Um, so there's different things you need to be mindful of. Yeah, as a taxpayer, I think you're exactly right. This is millions of dollars. If they do not do their, their constitutional duty to take care of the inmate, we do not believe in cruel and unusual punishment in this country. This is not retribution time in the jail system. It's right in our constitution. There's no cruel and unusual punishment. So once you're into that space of mind, you have to realize that our system will be punished. The taxpayers will be punished if we don't take action now. And so I, I could not agree more from from very practical perspective. But I also want to I also want to acknowledge that these are people. The vast majority of us, by the grace of God, go I right. I, you know, we we are not sitting back pure as the driven snow on everything we've ever done in our life, um, and. So when someone runs afoul of the law, that doesn't mean that this person's life is over or should be over. It just means that they've run afoul of the law and we need to get them back on the right track. That's my opinion. So I could not agree more that we need to say, hey, these are people's loved ones. These are people's children. Um, these are your friends. Let's treat them with a bit of kindness, some respect, some decency. And man, also let's look at the employees that are working in these prisons on a daily basis. It, because if the inmates are getting COVID and that's that number of that, that high of a rate, those employees are getting COVID too. And then they're coming home and taking it home to their families. Yes, that's a point that um, a lot of advocates have made and so have the unions that um, many of the employees are concerned and there's been whistleblowers um, among the um, correctional officers about how they're being treated in the state prisons and the jails when it comes to COVID because um, they're concerned. They're concerned about, you know, are we getting um, the protective equipment that we need to protect ourselves so that we can, you know, protect our families. Um, and so far there's been um, over 900 self-reported cases among employees inside the state prisons. Um, so I think that's another concern that people need to um, think about is just, you know, what, how are the employees being treated and how are they being protected as well? Yeah. One of the other stories I saw on the Republic 
talks, talks about an executive order from Governor Ducey. And I want to share a personal experience before we talk about that order. I've had loved ones in nursing homes. I've also had friends and family who have worked in the nursing home systems. One of my friends who worked in a nursing home in the early sp- spring, he told me about how his home ended up contracting COVID, some of the patients, and as well as many of the workers. And early in the spring, many politicians were saying things like COVID's uh, a hoax, and they were saying things that uh, it's all going to disappear. But it didn't really feel that way for him as he attacked, or rather the home was attacked by the virus. And so he was one of the first ones to really be confronted with how to treat patients. They ended up changing their business model and accepted a lot of COVID patients because once it's in the home, you know, it's bad news for the home. And so they changed their business model. They began to accept a ton of patients. They developed a protocol for how to treat them and became quite successful and treating COVID patients so that their their death rates were very, very low. This wasn't an easy process. This was a learn as you go. You know, Governor Ducey's order, I think, in light of that story has, has a little bit of more meaning. Tell me what he did. Yeah, so um, my colleagues, Ann Ryman and Maria Paletta, Um, reported on his order and kind of what this means for families who have loved ones in um, nursing homes and other facilities. And basically, they've said that experts are warning that this might make it harder for um, loved ones to sue if their um, loved one or family member, you know, contracts COVID and, you know, unfortunately passes away. Um, and like you said, like so many of us have loved ones who are in nursing homes or were in nursing homes um, a while ago. And uh, my um, colleague, Ann Ryman, she's, you know, looking more into that, what that means for uh, people with, who are in nursing homes. Um, she's reported on countless deaths that happened um, during this time um, in nursing homes. And so a lot of people kind of want to know, you know, what this means, like can can we still do something um, to help our loved one? Yeah, as a legal story, I think this is really important. You know, that he enacted it under his police powers. He decided that as under his police powers, he's going to change tort law. Ordinarily, if a nursing home is negligent, then they are sued for negligence by the loved ones and families uh, and the or possibly the injured person who, or the possibly the person who died. But he changed that. He turned it on its head. So just as a primer, normally if a, a healthcare worker has a duty to act as a reasonable healthcare worker, and if they don't act as a reasonable healthcare worker, they breach that duty. And if damages have followed either or in the form of injuries or death, then that 
that uh, person or those family members can receive compensation from the negligent healthcare worker. But Ducey says, no, no, COVID's different. COVID requires a new set of protocols. And these new protocols, we really don't know what they are yet because we're trying to figure it out. And he says, let's change it. Let's change the standard from ordinary negligence to gross negligence, reckless or willful misconduct. So in other words, you have to prove if you're a loved one who, whose family member has died or someone who's been injured, you have to prove that the healthcare workers and the facility wanted that to happen. They were intentional almost, or they just didn't care at all. That's a tough standard. You know, one of the things that I, I was interested in with this story is not only how far the police powers are going to be allowed to go, because these governors have used the police powers to shut down meetings, but can you use the police powers to change the tort system? Man, that's, yeah, that, that's going to be challenged at some point. I see this as a big future story. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like COVID is going, is, going to continue to change the legal system and um, present a lot of challenges for us and, you know, continue to um, make us wonder what's going to happen in the future. Another really important story, legal story here locally, has been how the local uh, prosecutor's offices and the judicial system are taking a look at criminal justice reform. You know, during the 80s and 90s, there was a spike in crime. And as politicians and prosecutors and those involved in the criminal justice system looked at it, a lot of people decided, well, the problem is we're not draconian enough. We got to get tough on crime. And sentences became longer. And maybe in we found and recently that some people got wrongfully convicted. You know, as a baby attorney, I, I had this sort of uncomfortable experience. I was a brand new attorney and I'm going to the courtroom and I see a nice gentleman and he's with his, what appears to be his girlfriend. And he, and I'm trying to get myself geared up for court. And so I'm getting in the right, frame of mind, you know, putting my game face on. And he's telling how he was wrongfully convicted to his girlfriend. And he points up at a picture of a judge and says, see that judge and names the judge. (laughs) And he says, and that's who sentenced me. Pretty damn sobering, right? I mean, that was a real moment. That guy lost years of his life. And I think people are waking up to the possibility that we have to be more careful. What are we doing locally? Yeah. So um, the Maricopa County attorney announced a couple months ago that she, um, Alice County attorney, Alistair Dell, that she um, create is creating a new unit to look at 
um, wrongful conviction claims and other um, claims of misconduct in cases. And this type of unit is um, actually kind of common across the country. Um, Arizona is kind of um, behind when it comes to other counties across the country. Um, for example, Cook County has done a lot of, a lot of um, um, you know, tur- turning over uh, cases, dismissals against people um, because of wrongful convictions. But um, in, in Arizona, there's only been two, there's only two other counties that have similar union, units that uh, the Maricopa County's office is trying to form. Um, and so this unit basically you knows going to look at wrongful convictions. And it's kind of important because um, Arizona um, is continuous, continuously ranks in the top um, with the highest, one of the top states for uh, mass incarceration in Maricopa County um, is responsible for the most amount of inmates in our state prisons um, is responsible for most of the convictions of those inmates. Um, so it's, you know, I think this u- unit is um, really important because it will, you know, look to see if a lot of the inmates in our state prisons or a lot of the people who have been released from our state prisons really shouldn't have had those convictions at all. So I think um, a lot of people are hoping um, this unit will do some good in our community. You know, it's announced a few months ago, there was an election going on. Is this just lip service? How do we know it's real? Yeah, so I think that's a question, you know, that's a question that a lot of people wanted to know. Um, and, you know, criminal justice reform was a big issue in our election um, on the campaign trail between um, um, Alistair Dell and Judy and Julie Gunnival, um, who was the Democrat candidate. Um, so that was a big thing. You know, Alistair Dell um, continu- continuously said that she cares about reform um, and, and cares about, you know, good ethics and fairness. So, you know, we just have to kind of wait to see, to see if this unit does some good. Um, For example, in Pima County, that's one of the counties that has a similar unit. Um, Unfortunately, when it, according to the, um, according to some um, advocacy groups, um, that unit has, um, it's been around for um, around six or seven years. And advocacy groups have said that that unit has not, Done um, has not found um, many wrongful convictions in the office. Um, so it's kind of, you know, we kind of have to wait and see um, how, how much will happen. Um, I'll give an example of a person who um, in Arizona who was hoping, uh, you know, to receive a ruling for his wrongful conviction, um, Lewis Taylor. He um, went to prison when he was a, when he was a teenager um, and he was released. However, he was released because um, he accepted a plea deal. Um, years after a fire that he that resulted into his resulted because of his sentence, um, he went to he basically went to prison because um, of a deadly fire in Tucson um, that people believed that people um, accused him of starting. Um, and he was, and he, went, 
He went to prison for like 40 years, right? Yes, he went. Yes, he went to prison for 40 years and he was convicted by an all white jury. Um, And he's black. Um, And with the help of the Arizona Justice Project, which looks into wrongful conviction claims and helps those in prison, um, experts, fire experts determined there was not, um, it wasn't possible um, for him to really start the fire or that, you know, the fire couldn't have been resulted of all, couldn't have been the result of arson. Um, And so the Pima County Attorney's Office decided to give him a plea deal. Um, However, he accepted the plea deal. However, he said that, and he has continued to say that he did not start it, that he is not guilty. Um, and because he accepted that plea deal, he has not been able to be compensated for his um, wrongful conviction. He has taken it to federal courts, to the ninth, U.S. Ninth Circuit. Um, they said, you know, because you accept that plea deal, you can't get compensation. Um, however, your case... Um, there's a lot of wrongs that happened to you. Um, and then he even, you know, requested the Supreme Court of the United States to step in and they refused to um, hear his case. So that's kind of an example of, you know, a wrongful conviction issue that's happening in Arizona. So I think this unit, you know, is very important and we just kind of have to wait to see what happens and to see if um, this actually is um something that matters to the county attorney and not something that's worth that's because of politics. You know, as we start to look forward to other issues in the law, we've talked about issues in the past, but I want to talk about issues looking forward. And But of course, our history matters, right? So there was a story you did that I think has an ongoing impact, something we need to look at in the law. And it, it may not be obvious to people why we need to look at this. Our county, Maricopa County, is 45.5% people of color, according to your article. And you, you put together a lot of statistics. I'm going to read some of these off. 84% of the prosecutors in our county are white. Of 300... And 60 total, the office has three Native Americans, six Black, 14 Asians, and 30 Hispanic attorneys. 80% of the county's public defenders identify as white. 68% of the elected justices in Maricopa County justice courts who handle misdemeanors and evictions and small claims identify as white. 89% of Superior Court judges and 86% the Superior Court commissioners identify as white. So of the 98 judges, four identify Hispanic, three as black, three as Asian, and one as Native American. And the Superior Court is important because it hears the higher level felony type cases um, versus what the Justice Court is seeing. 81% of the state's Court of Appeals and 71% of the Supreme Court justices identify as white. Okay. Yeah, there's a little disparity there. Why does it matter? Yeah, so it matters because, um, you know, reports have been done on our criminal justice system here in Maricopa County, and they have found that, um, 
people of color are more um, are disproportionately um, sentenced and um, convicted um, more than white people. Um, so I think that kind of matters because you know you see that um, our leaders in our criminal justice system are not people of color, the majority of them, but yet most of the people who are sentenced are. Um, so that kind of, you know, that I think that's important, especially when so many people um, are learning about the our criminal justice reform and wanting things to change and wanting um, to improve the system. Um, so I think that's kind of important. However, it's also important to keep in mind that um, even if we improve the numbers of um, the racial makeup of our um, prosecutor's office and our public defenders and our judges, um, it's not going to fully change everything in the system. Um, I spoke with a professor um, and she told me that, you know, it's also important for our leaders to, um, for their, it's also important that, you know, their beliefs um, are um, something that's going to help change that they're in, that they value change and that they are looking to um, address change because if they um, don't believe that change needs to happen, but yet they, um, you know, help, you know, hire more people of color, it's not going to really improve anything. So, um, but these numbers are kind of, you know, really important because, you know, you want to support your employees and you want, um, to support the people who are working for you, who are people of color, to kind of make sure that they um, know that they're valued and that they um, are getting all the resources that they need. Um, but then also um, it's important to have a diverse group of people working for you because that improves the thoughts um, that are um, that are being thought, that are being, you know, kind of um, being kind of hap- they're happening inside the office and especially when it comes to cases because um, you want you know different um, ideas on how to handle a case versus just one um, viewpoint so I think that's kind of important yeah I, I, first of all I agree with you but let me let me push you on the subject let me just see if I could elicit something else from you. Will justice change? I mean, if I'm looking at a person of color up on the bench and I'm convicted or I, I just been proved guilty of a DUI, will my justice change if it's a person of color versus a white, a white uh, judge? You know, I think it's, you know, it's more complex than, you know, just thinking about that because, yeah. um, you know, everyone has different life experiences. Um, and a person of color might have um, a different life experience than someone who is white, not just because um, they're, um, let's say they, they both might've gone to the same law school, might've both um, grew up in the same neighborhood, but because of their person of color, they might've had to, um, you know, uh, deal with certain different barriers just because of their skin color, because of stereotypes that were held against them or something like that. So they might be able to see see a case in a different viewpoint. They might be understand why a person might've did something um, that they did or might understand, oh, this is why they had different challenges or why they weren't able to receive 
get different resources. So um, it's not to say that, hey, they might not receive the justice that they need if they um, have a white judge against them or a black judge against them. It's just another viewpoint um, that could be used in the courtroom. And I feel like a lot of um, different people are trying to improve and trying to do things to help um, increase um, diversity when it comes to race. Um, the law schools um, at Arizona, you know, in Arizona have done things to kind of support students um, by, you know, offering different services for students who are interested in public interests. Um, as well as offering um, different committees to kind of help them voice their concerns and, you know, help them um, deal with certain issues that um, might be, um, that they might be dealing with. Like, for example, um, imposter syndrome, that's a, um, a panel discussion that um, the University of Arizona held for its um, law students of color. Um, and then, you know, the state bar, as well as um, our courts have been doing things to kind of um, improve numbers. Um, our courts have had um, done a several things, actually. We, there's a commission on, um, a commission that focuses on, you know, researching the numbers and understanding why there's not a lot of judges of color. Um, they've hosted panels and um, workshops to kind of help um, people of color understand the pathways to become a judge, um, whether or not you want to become a judge for a city court or, you know, become um, a judge on the justice courts or uh, superior level. Um, and in fact, actually, um, Maricopa County, um, before our November election, did not have a Native American um, justice of the peace. But now um, voters actually elected um, a Native American um, to be to rule from the branch on the Moon Valley Justice Court. So that kind of, you know, um, voters were able to um, improve numbers that way. Um, so, you know, there's different ways that um, people have been improving um, diversity and who are looking to improve diversity. So, you know, another future area of the law that we need to really think about is Prop 207 here in Arizona. And this legalized the recreational use of marijuana. Whoa. This is going to change the landscape. How do you think it's going to change the legal landscape? What issues are going to arise because of Prop 207? Yeah. So um, already the Maricopa County Attorney's Office has um, started to dismiss cases um, that have, well, not dismiss cases, but dismiss charges that concern, um, you know, possession of marijuana and paraphernalia that are impacted by Prop 207. So some people are already seeing that, are seeing their lives impacted by that. Um, but some um, issues that I'm looking at and my coworkers are looking at when it comes to Prop 207 in the future are um, expungements. What right. happened to people who are, um, who've been convicted of marijuana possession? Um, you know, how quickly will their cases, um, you know, be expunged? Um, when will, how quickly will they get their civil rights back so they can vote and do other things? Um, and then also, you know, how does this impact 
um, renters and landlords, you know, will their landlords be able to still enforce, um, you can't, you know, smoke marijuana in my apartment or a house that you're leasing from me? Um, you know, what does that deal, you know, do with those type of issues? Um, my coworker, um, Ryan Rendazzo, has already looked into what does this mean for employers and employees? Um, you know, yeah. like apparently um, employers can still require pre-employment drug testing. Um, so that's something people need to look out for. So there's still so many, um, you know, concerns when it comes to marijuana. Oh, absolutely. I'm looking also at the thought of DUI how much marijuana in your system creates a DUI situation. If I'm, you know, smoking marijuana on day one and day two, I go drive and I maybe still have a trace left in me, but I'm not impaired. I'm pulled over for a different reason. Maybe I'm tested. Um, Did I drive impaired? Uh, Arizona's law is impairment to the least degree, but man, uh, how far are we going to take this? Are we going to have standards like they do for alcohol? These are really important issues. And I think it would be really cavalier if someone just jumped out, jumped out ahead of this and said, well, it's now legal. I could do what I want. Nah, I don't think that's going to happen. We still have a lot of issues to work out. People need to be very careful. Um, about how they approach 207 and recreational marijuana in their personal lives. Because even, um, for example, even when um, after medical marijuana was passed, there were still legal issues with that that we saw in the courts. So, um, you know, people really do need to be careful uh, now, especially with Prop 207. So, Lauren, thank you for coming on the podcast, Is That Even Legal? It means a lot to me that you're willing to share your time, share your legal expertise and knowledge about how the law affects us. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast, Is That Even Legal? A discussion of what's legal. Just as a reminder, this is not legal advice for you. This is general information. It's meant to be educational. If you have specific legal needs, don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice. Attorneys are lovable. They're fun. They want to hear from you. See you next time. Mm